America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I so appreciate you listening. I'm very pleased to have Deborah Holt Larkin with me. She has a master's degree in education of exceptional children from San Francisco State University and has had a long career, more than 30 years, as a teacher and an elementary school principal. Her debut book is called A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. Great to have you on. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here. So this is a case that is very personal for you, right? Yes, it is. Uh Uh, It really was a pivotal moment in my life when Olga Duncan disappeared. And part of the connection you have is through your father. Can you tell us about your father's role in this case? Uh, Yes. My my father was um, a newspaper reporter in Ventura at the Ventura County Star Free Press. And uh, he was award-winning. He was kind of um, very well-known in the community. And uh, he also wrote a column, a weekly column about just the goings on in town, but also many of them were devoted to our family. So he was, he was both a crime reporter for this and, uh, you know, right in the same newspaper, his uh, humorous columns appeared that talked about our family and other things that went on in town. And he was the uh, lead reporter for the paper uh, for the uh, Olga Duncan case. And he reported on it from the um, time that Olga disappeared uh, through the investigation and then the trial of her murderers. And um, he was also, a, he, he was a, a character and he really, he had no filter. So we heard about everything at home. He didn't Think, stop to think was this appropriate for you know two young girls we just he just talked about it. anything in the news he he talked about and so while he was reporting well first of all I, I saw it in the paper I read the paper as a little girl that Olga had disappeared and this was very troubling to me and then when her body was found and all of that 
he talked about it at the dinner table every night. And I became very obsessed with that crime, but also the idea that I could be a potential murder victim. And uh, the, the case has stuck with me all these years. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you pointed out that your father went back and forth in his column between talking about your family and the case. And you have constructed your book in a similar fashion, right? Exactly. Um, It took me a a while to get there about how I was going to write about this story. But, uh, you know, I I was part of the um, San Diego Writers, Inc. writing community, and I was in a a read and critique group. And so I would bring in various pieces, and sometimes I would bring in attempts that I was making to, to write a a true crime about uh, Olga's murder. And then other times I might bring in personal essays about my family and especially my father. And so one night I brought in this essay about how my father's had the tips of two of his fingers chopped off by um, his first power lawnmower that he had had named the Mrs. D uh, after Elizabeth Duncan. And uh, he was very dramatic. He was screaming at the top of the, his lungs that the, the lawnmower was a, a homicidal maniac. And but um, <laughs> So anyway, I wrote that essay. And that night, the, the uh, leader of the group, who and I've been with this group for over 10 years, he said, you know, Debbie, why don't you think about combining those two? Right, because I had written some things about being obsessed with a crime. You could write about your dad and your obsession, and then also write a police procedural in alternating chapters to tell the the the, the crime story. So that's how it became that that this is a true crime memoir, and my own experiences interwoven uh, throughout the chapters about the crime. Right, right. So yeah, as you've already mentioned briefly. This case centers around the murder of Olga Duncan. But I would like to ask you about Elizabeth Ann Duncan, the woman your, your father named his lawnmower after. That's, that's correct, yeah. That homicidal maniac. Yeah, she's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and her son, Frank. Would you tell us about their background and their relationship? Well... uh, I'll tell you about their background first. The relationship's a little cloudy. Elizabeth Duncan had been, was married multiple times, maybe 11 or 12 times, and she was a con artist. And she married these men in order to bilk them out of money. And she would somehow convince them that she had an inheritance uh, from a dead husband that she could only collect if she remarried. Now that seems that story seems preposterous to me, but multiple men somehow believed her. So after she would marry them, of course there was no money because there was no inheritance. But then she would make it difficult for them to get out of the marriage, and she would sometimes file for alimony and just very. It was she was she. As the DA said uh, in that that unpublished memoir I read that he, she was a con artist. And she also would try to bilk landlords out of money. They would move in. She and Frank would move into the, a house, a rental, and then she just wouldn't pay any rent. And then it would take them months to get her out. And so she kind of lived like that. And uh, Frank Duncan 
was, you know, the, the apple of his mother's eye. He was what I think of as a resilient child. He was a really hard worker, managed to get him into himself into it. Would, I don't think it was actually called the University of California at Santa Barbara at the time, but he got into school there. He worked three jobs or something to, to keep himself in school. And then he ended up going to Hastings Law School in San Francisco, which is a very good law school, and also worked multiple jobs to, to be able to go there. And Elizabeth, and I, and I guess I want to say at, at, at one time in their life, it, they had some stability because she was married to Frank's stepfather, Frank Sr. But the man had left Elizabeth just before Frank went off to law school. So she followed him to law school, lived uh, there with him. And uh, from then on, she never really left Frank's side. And because they would, they eventually moved down to Santa Barbara after Frank got his law degree and passed the bar. And they were living in Santa Barbara in an apartment there together. So Frank, what was he was doing well. He became a criminal defense attorney, and uh, he he wasn't by any means the star of, of the town as far as defense attorneys, but he he was doing well, and he had a, a decent income. And his mother felt I, I it's I, she felt like she was now on easy street, that Frank would be supporting her for the rest of her life, and uh, that she would have nice things and everything. But but it, they, she was always difficult, and she and Frank had a little bit of a, a tumultuous relationship because they both had tempers. Frank Duncan had a temper, too. And at one point, uh, his mother was trying to buy a beauty parlor. And, of course, Frank knew that she had no money, and he was furious with her, and uh, he wouldn't give her any money and, you know, got the people that she was trying to con uh, you know, to, to just tell him that the, the deal wasn't going to happen. And then he told his mother to get out, to get out of his apartment, and he didn't want her around anymore. Well, Elizabeth Duncan, it comes out in the trial, is was terrified of being alone. That was one of her worst nightmares, that she would be alone. And so she said to Frank, well, can I stay tonight and then leave in the morning? And he said, you know, okay. Well, she she was on sleeping pills. She had, she took a lot of phenobarbital. So that night she took a big overdose of phenobarbital. And the next morning, she had didn't kill her. The next morning they rushed her to Cottage Hospital. And there was this lovely nurse, Olga Kupensik, that had immigrated from Canada and was working at Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara. And Olga was one of Mrs. Duncan's nurses. And in the vein of no good deed goes unpunished, uh, Frank started to get to know her and liked her. And after his mother was discharged from the hospital, he invited Olga out on a date. And they started dating, and Frank brought her over to, to see his mother one Sunday. And she took an absolutely dis dislike to the woman. I think he could see that she could see that Frank was, was serious or really interested in Olga. And uh, she told her neighbor that she would like to push her down the stairs and break her ankle if she could. And that was that was one of the few times she actually ever met Olga. So at that from that point on, Mrs. Duncan took up a campaign of harassment to try to get uh, Olga to to leave Frank alone. And she called her. Oh, she made up all kinds of stories about her. And one of the things she called her was an immigrant, because Olga had come from Canada, and she didn't want her son marrying an immigrant. 
And uh, so Frank was telling her that, yeah, that he was serious about Olga and that they were thinking of getting married. And in the meantime, in the, these uh, time that they had been dating, Olga had become pregnant. So she really stepped up the, um, the harassment and started telling people that it wasn't Frank's son and the woman was trying to trick her. So anyway, the night before they were going to get married, Frank came home and told his mother, and she said, promise me you won't marry her. And she said, okay, I promise. And also the night before, Mrs. Duncan had been calling Olga at all hours and threatening her. So he went back to Olga and um, he said he, he, he knew his mother had been harassing her. And he said, well, he said, if you'll still have me, I, I, I'd like to, we'll go ahead and get married. So after telling his mother that they wouldn't get married, he did go out and marry Olga at the courthouse in Santa Barbara that day and asked the court clerk or whoever it was that married him, I guess it was a judge there, married him, if they he could not register the marriage for a couple of days because he wanted to give his mother time. Well, Mrs. Duncan had already found out because she called the hospital trying to get it to Olga. And, and times were different. Now your employer would never get out and give out your personal information. But the switchboard operator at the hospital said, Olga, oh, Olga's not here today. She took the day off. She's getting married. And so, you know, Mrs. Duncan just hit the roof after that. And uh, Frank lived with Olga for about three weeks. And Mrs. Duncan came to their apartment once and just was harassing them. Actually, two different times. They moved apart. She, Frank moved Olga to different apartments and she still kept showing up. So he finally decided to move home. And later on at the, tr at the trial when he was a witness, he said that he was just trying to keep the two women happy until the baby was born because he thought that when Olga had their baby that Mrs. Duncan would be excited about a grandchild and come around. But, you know, that never happened. So when you say Elizabeth took an immediate dislike to Olga, do you think it had anything to do with Olga herself? Or was it the fact that Olga was just a woman who happened to be taking her son Frank's attention, uh, affection, away from her? I believe uh, it was the latter. I believe that she immediately sensed that this was a serious relationship and she didn't want uh, Olga anywhere near her son and she didn't want him to get married. And she admitted when at the trial, she admitted, no, I didn't want my son to get married. And she said, and no, I didn't like Olga. Lots of mothers, sons' mothers don't like the women that they marry. And I admit it, I don't like her. But yeah, she really, she wanted the support and she didn't want to live alone. And she would get really angry when Olga, when Frank spent money on Olga. So there was a lot of things going on. And then I guess I should go ahead and say now that the D DA who prosecuted uh, the trial of uh, prosecuting Elizabeth Duncan uh, really gave out a lot of hints about incest. Um, he never came right out and said that uh, there was an incestuous relationship, but he, he did um, make a lot of insinuations in the trial and I, I believe and in the press a little bit at the beginning. And as after I did all of that research and read everything, and I remember my, my father never thought that there was an incestuous relationship. He thought that Roy Gustafson was just sort of trying to, to stir up the jury pool. 
and make this, you know, a more of a sensational case than it was. Plus, Roy Gustafson had aspirations to run for the governor of California. And that if this trial, if this trial was really big and he won, that that could be a stepping stone. And then in the in the um, closing arguments of the trial, he started to try to say that, you know, they lived in the same apartment with only one bed in San Francisco. And the defense attorney immediately got up and objected and said, no, wait a second. You brought it out on the stand that there were two beds and one was in a huge, it was a rollaway bed in a, in a, in a huge closet. And he, and Gustafson says, says, oh, right. Well, I didn't mean to imply that this was a sexual relationship between Mrs. Duncan and her son. I just meant it was an unusually close relationship. So Gustafson admitted in his closing arguments that it was not incestuous, but that, that was what a lot of people believed in. And I still have a lot of friends in Ventura, and a lot of people still believe that, that, that that's what it was, that that was true. But but there were little oddities, right? Oh, very odd. Yeah, <laughs> this was the late 1950s. Um, men used the word "doll," but right. Frank called his mother "doll." That's what the landlady testified to when she, because she was there when they came over to the apartment. But Frank denied it on the stand that he did not ever use that word. So you know, I don't know. Hmm. But I think Frank probably called her "doll." I knew a guy when I was in college that used that word, and I he, I heard him call his mother doll. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I don't think that was a strange relationship. You know, that was just kind of being cool, I guess. I don't know. Well, yeah, it, it was a different era, of course. Uh, I certainly wasn't around in the 1950s. It's, it sounds odd today. Yes, it does. <laughs> so after they're married... It's, of course, now impossible for Elizabeth to prevent the marriage, but she's still intent on breaking them up. What, yes. what does she do? Well, she, they, they uh, move to a third apartment. Uh, she gets Frank to, to come to, to live at home. But Frank was still going over to see Olga most nights, sometimes had dinner and stayed till the late evening. So she... Just, she, she really wants them just separated, done this done once and for all. So um, she decides to get Frank an annulment. She has been trying to convince him that he needs to annul this marriage. And so he won't do it. He said, you know, she's my wife. I have no intention of doing that. And so uh, Elizabeth calls the Santa Barbara Salvation Army. And she said she wants to hire an odd job guy to do some window washing at her uh, apartment. And so they sent over this odd job guy and she tells him, well, actually what I'm gonna, I'll pay you a hundred dollars if you'll come with me to Ventura and pose as my son, Frank, and I'll pretend that I am Olga and we're gonna get an annulment for, for their marriage. And, and you know, when I knew about that annulment, but when I, I never could figure out how could they possibly do that without ID, you know, they didn't ask, the the lawyer didn't ask for ID and neither did the judge. They simply had them sign an affidavit that they were Olga Duncan and Frank Duncan. And that's, you know, kind of how that was pulled off. But when Frank eventually found out of it, he says, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's not worth the paper that it's printed on because she had the annulment decree there and that you know that didn't take care of it 
And, but she frequently would tell people that Frank wasn't married to her, to Olga, that the marriage had been annulled, and that they should, they should go to Vent, down to Ventura to check on that if they didn't believe her, because that's where she went with the Salvation Army guy. And she went over to their apartment one day when they were, when Olga was at work and uh, Frank was at work, but he didn't live there that much anymore anyway, and talked the landlady, Mrs. Barnett, into letting her into the apartment, told her that she was Frank's mother and and the landlady hadn't realized that Frank really wasn't living there. And so against her better judgment, she took Mrs. Duncan up to the apartment and Mrs. Duncan just flew into the apartment and threw open the closet and was rifling through all the clothes saying, look here, Frank's clothes aren't here. He doesn't live here. They're living in sin. I want you to kick them out. So, you know, she did crazy things like that. And that's when she said, she said to that landlady, Nobody's going to take away my son. I'll kill her if it's the last thing I do. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Back in a brief moment. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. 
we have returned. So, can we talk about Olga? The, the kind of person she was? So, and, and what was her reaction to Elizabeth's actions? Well, the, the landlady always referred to her, and I got this from the testimony on the stand, to as that lovely girl. She said, I wish all of my tenants were as sweet and nice as Olga. So she said that. But, you know, I could read um, a part of a letter that Olga wrote to her parents. I have it in the epilogue of the book, but, you know, I think it would be okay. And I think you get a good sense of Olga in that. Would you want me to do that? Sure, yeah. I would love to hear it. Okay. Well, it'll just take me a second to find it in the book. but No problem. There's an epilogue that's kind of interesting that has what happened to everybody after the crime. Sure. Okay. So uh, her parents lived in Canada, and uh, a a month after she married Frank, uh, she sent them this letter, which was inadmissible in the trial. I ended up getting it because it went into the the exhibits for the appeal, and uh, so that's where I found it. And so Olga's words live on to tell her story. As you all have guessed by now, all is not well with Frank and me, or should I say Frank and I and his mother. As I told you before, Frank's mother has lived with Frank for so long that she has an uncanny hold on him. She is a very possessive woman and has not allowed him out of her sight. Therefore, Frank has not really grown up. He's never been away from home. We had been planning to be married for some time, as you know, but Frank didn't tell his mother until shortly before. She phoned me at two in the morning and said that she didn't approve, that he was in love with another girl, that I was a foreigner. So the next day, Frank found out about the phone call and said, if I was still interested, we'd be married that day. After weeping all night, you can imagine how I felt. Naturally, there was not time for formalities, so we were married at by a superior court judge at the nationally famous Santa Barbara courthouse. And then she lists a few things in, in, in brief about uh, some of the things that Mrs. Duncan had done. And so I won't read all of those things, but she also said, all of this was a shock at first, but I rather laugh now. I could go on and on, but all I can say is that she has not allowed Frank to live here. He has a great problem, so I have consulted many people. Thank God I I found out instead of a year from now. I know you will want to help. You can do something. Write and tell me news about home and the children. That will cheer me up more than anything. If I have anything else to say about the situation, I will write you. The reason I did not write about it before was the fact that I thought time would work it out, but I know it won't. So please write about yourselves. I know about me, so I don't want to dwell on my troubles. Life is short, and I want to enjoy the rest of it. And she was murdered about six weeks later. Well, maybe two months. But, you know, you get a feel from Olga there about Olga. That, that's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was about two and a half months before that she wrote that letter. Yeah. So it, it's like the middle of November 1958 when she disappears. Who first notices because she's not living with Frank at this point, right? 
No, she's not. And she'd had a couple of um, her friends from the hospital, other nurses over the night before. And uh, I know a lot. I know some about this because the nurses testified later and Mrs. Barnett, the landlady, saw them leaving in, uh, in the night. But so they left around 1110 and no one ever saw her alive again. But the next morning, Olga was a surgical nurse at the hospital and uh, she didn't show up for surgery. And everybody was just shocked. They were afraid something was wrong. Was there something with the baby? Because Olga had never missed work. And if they, they were sure that she would call if you know something unavoidable came up. So the two nurses went over uh, to the apartment and um, Mrs. Barnett was already, had noticed that these apartments, I actually went and visited, it's still there. They had sliding glass doors that could be one of the entryways. And that was what was in the front of the part, the apartment. The, there was a little door kind of around back, but that's where you went in and out. So the door was partially opened and the drape was flapping in the wind. It was making this noise. And that's why Mrs. Barnett went to check on the apartment. And just as she did, the two nurse friends showed up and they said, well, we're worried she didn't show up for surgery. So they went inside and uh, the lights were on and there was still dishes on the counter from when uh, the nurses had been there having coffee and, and uh, rolls. Uh, the bed was turned down, but it wasn't slept in. And uh, it was otherwise it was just totally empty. So they called Frank and he didn't know where they, they had to wait a while because he was in court. But when he got out, he said he didn't know where they were. They wanted him to come over. So he did. And then um, he looked around and he said, well, I think maybe some of our luggage is missing. But anyway, they, call, he, they called the police and uh, the police came over and took a report. And they're thinking at the time, and Frank kind of told, said this, well, you know, she's angry with me and she maybe have just, you know, gone off to uh, make me mad or something. But the thing was the other nurses said, but yeah, but her purse is still in the apartment. She's left her purse behind. And, you know, what woman would do that? So uh, the police took a report. And at first they kind of thought for just a day or so that she maybe would be a runaway wife. But then they started hearing almost right away about um, Mrs. Duncan's harassment. So they started to take it seriously. So police hear these stories about Elizabeth and some of the terrible things she has said and done to Olga. How do they connect her to Olga's disappearance? For a month, they were getting nowhere. They would hear things about Elizabeth, uh, but they had no body. And she was, you know, she was absolutely adamant. And she was the, the, she was the um, mother of a defense, criminal defense attorney who frequently went to court to watch her son try cases. So she was kind of savvy and she would, she wouldn't talk about it. She said nothing, but the, the killers had been promised $6,000 and, you know, she, like her days as a con artist, she didn't have a nickel to herself. So Frank had given her a check to make a payment on a typewriter that he had was was an order apparently it was kind of a layaway thing but it must have been a very expensive typewriter because it was a $200 check and Mrs. Duncan went and managed to cash it for cash herself and paid the killers the first installment of actually $150 because she's kept 50 bucks for herself 
So, but when she got home, Frank knew his mother well, and he wanted to see a receipt for the typewriter, a payment. And of course she couldn't come up with it. So he was pressing her and angry. And so she, she was a pathological liar and she just would come up with one lie after another, just on the spot. And then if she kind of got caught in that one, she'd come up with another lie. So she told him that she was being blackmailed by this woman, the wife of one of Frank's clients, who felt that Frank hadn't done a good enough job defending her husband. And she wanted the fees returned. Plus, uh, and, and she had these two guys. And they, Mrs. Duncan was said she was walking by the, the restaurant. She owned the Tropical Cafe and Bar in Santa Barbara. And she was walking up State Street. And they pulled her in and uh, started demanding the money back. And she had these two men with him, with the two young men with her that was, you know, looked, seemed like kind of the enforcers. So she said to Frank that the men then said that they wanted even more money. And so she had uh, cashed this check and made this payment. And, you know, Elizabeth Duncan never really thought much ahead of, you know, two minutes ahead of time. And so Frank said, well, I'm going down there to the tropical cafe and get my money back. That's ridiculous. That guy had a good deal on it. And I, I, I kept him out of state prison. And, uh, the, and so she says, no, you can't go down that there. They've threatened to kill us. You can't, you, you, they'll kill you if you go down there. And he says, okay, well then we're going to go report it to the police. And uh, she didn't want to do that either. But Frank dragged her down to the Santa Barbara police department to make this report on this extortion attempt. attempt. Mrs. Duncan called it blackmail. And so from that, things just started to unravel. I won't go into all the details, but that's really what started everything unraveling because they eventually found those men. And also I should say this was kind of, um, Mrs. Duncan had a, a sidekick. Mrs. Emma Short, 80 plus years old, was sort of this you know, doddering woman, but she went everywhere with Mrs. Duncan. And so she had a lot of information that one of the detectives, a guy named Charlie Thompson, figured out that, you know, if he could get her alone, because they'd only ever talked to her when Mrs. Duncan was around, he thought maybe he could find out some things. And yeah, that's what happened when he talked to Emma. It, it, it all started to come out. So that's what led to the discovery of the killers who were then arrested. And then one of them led them to the body. Yeah. So the police would learn that Elizabeth had approached multiple people <laughs> right. With bizarre murder plots. W w would you share with us a, a couple of these weird plans she had hatched? I know. She had, um, she thought that she was trying to get this uh, woman that was, I believe, a, uh, she was a, a car hop at the uh, local drive in restaurant that Mrs. Duncan and Mrs. and her friend Emma Short liked to go to a lot. And so, she tried to get her uh, to come with her and that they would go to Olga's apartment and that uh, she would have a blanket, a chloroformed blanket, and they would throw the blanket over Olga's head to chloroform, then drag her to the car and then drive up in the mountains and then throw her off a cliff in the mountains. So that was one crazy idea. And, and that woman said, you know, no. And she actually called that. She actually called Frank and said, I think your mother is, is gone crazy. 
And Frank immediately went and talked to his mother and she said, oh no, you know, she's, she just misunderstood totally. I was thinking of kidnapping you and taking you to all LA to get you away from her. So anyway, Frank had brought, bought that story. Another time she wanted Mrs. Short to allow, they would invite, Mrs. Short would invite Olga to her own apartment and then she would seat her in front of this closet and Mrs. Duncan would be hiding in the closet and then she would you know come out of the closet and put something around Olga's neck and strangle her and then she would hang her in the closet and that's what Mrs. Short really objected to she wasn't going to have any dead body hanging in her closet overnight oh. and so that plan was next and another time they were going to she was going to take her um, somehow kill her, wrap up the body in a blanket, call a cab, because Mrs. Duncan didn't drive, call a cab, have the cab drive them to the wharf, and then throw the body off the wharf, in the Santa Barbara wharf at the beach. Yeah, what, her plans were, were just insane. And, and so I, I think, you know, she wanted to get rid of Olga, but I think she lived a little bit in la-la land and, and never really knew if, if anything she did was going to work out. So I think she might have been even a little surprised when uh, the killers actually carried out the plan. How did she get connected to these hitmen, Moya and Baldonado? Uh, yeah, right? Luis, Luis Moya and Augustine Baldonado. Well, like I said, uh, one of Frank's clients was uh, the. It was a husband and wife that owned the Tropical Cafe and Bar. And it was a, really a dive place down on Lower State Street, which was a kind of a honky-tonk a, a area in the 1950s in Santa Barbara. So uh, Louis Moya and um, Baldonado frequented that bar and, and restaurant, and they were good friends with Mrs. Escoval, the wife of one of Frank's clients. And so they um, helped her out around the bar. They cleaned up and uh, helped her after, after her husband went to jail. They cleaned up and... and did odd jobs in the bar, and also, according to Mrs. Escoval, drank a lot of her beer, too. But they hung out there. And so that's how, when Mrs. Duncan talked to uh, Mrs. Escoval, if she knew anybody who could help her get rid of her daughter-in-law, uh, that's who Mrs. Escoval contacted and put in touch with Mrs. Duncan. Right, right. And what was the, the, the clue that led police to these two men? After um, Mrs. Duncan reported this uh, supposed extortion case to the police, they got out mugshots because they, they, they knew that she said it was the people at the, the tropical cafe. And they got out mugshots for her to look at. She claimed she didn't know any of them. And um, we'll, we'll look some more, they told Frank, and then we'll, we'll give them to you for his mother to look at. So uh, the police went over and talked to Mrs. Escoval, and of course she was probably sounded pretty believable when she says, "No, we didn't. I'm not blackmailing anybody. That's crazy." But when Frank got the other uh, the other pictures, the other mugshots from the police, he went over them with his wife, with his excuse me, with his mother, and he got her to admit to him that she recognized one of the guys. But then when she went back to the police and they had a lineup, she said she didn't recognize him. So Frank really, again, lowered the boom on his mother and said, you know that you recognize him 
you know, if you, if you can't tell them, then I'm, I'm leaving tonight. So she finally told the police, yeah, she recognized this one guy, but she wasn't going to file charges. She wasn't going to sign anything to file, file charges. And boy, that Frank was infuriated. And the police said, okay, well, this investigation is closed if you're not willing to cooperate with us. And so it was really after then that the police were convinced that the men were probably involved in Olga's kidnapping. They still didn't have a body yet. She did, they just knew she was gone and that um, there was a lie about the extortion and they, they just sort of were figuring it out. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, when these men were taken in for questioning, uh, one of them, uh, Moya, broke almost immediately. No, it was actually it was Baldonado, and it wasn't really immediately. He, he steadfastly said uh, that he didn't do it, but then he would say, well, I've got a secret, but I can't tell you. He would say things like that, almost tantalizing. And, and Baldonado wasn't the brightest guy in the world, and so he, he, he was somewhat vulnerable to being uh, the one that they would, if they were going to get anything, that it would come from him. And so they figured out that one of the uh, sheriff's deputies uh, used to have uh, the beat in Camarillo, where a nearby city of Ventura, where uh, Baldonado grew up. And he had known the family, and it was he said it was really pathetic that the kids might have been might as well have been raised by wolves. They were so neglected, and so Baldonado and his brother were in trouble sometimes, but. But this, this uh, deputy didn't really bring him in because he felt so sorry for him. So he, it, it rang a bell because they heard uh, when he was in the jail one day, he heard some of the other inmates calling him by his nickname, Talene, from when uh, Deputy Higgins knew him. And so they decided to use him. And he started talking to him and he says, you know, I remember you when you were a kid. You remember me. And you were, a, you know, you're really a, were a nice kid. I, 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 I want to help you. And I think that, you know, they already had a lot of information that if, if you don't tell us, then eventually Mrs. Duncan or Louis Moya will tell us and they're going to blame it all on you. And then they said, well, you have, you have your own children, Gus, and, and what, how would you feel if one of your children disappeared and you would never know where they were and what happened to them and at least give Olga's, the family, the chance to, to take her home and, and bury her? And then um, the next day they talked about that and he, they brought him in again. And they talked about it again. He said, we know, you, we know you did this. Oh, and I should say, this is before any Miranda uh, warnings were, requ were required. And uh, attorneys were appointed, but only after someone had been arraigned in court for a, a, a crime. And so M Mr. Baldonado didn't have an attorney with him, and he didn't have money to hire one. So he f uh, finally said, Okay, I'll I'll tell I'll I'll tell you where the body is, but you have to promise me two things, and um, the and they said, well, okay, <laughs> great, and uh, he said, well, first of all, I want to be able to t talk to a priest, and they said that's fine, okay, and so they 
the the one one of the detectives that were in there were, was going to go uh, notify the DA that Maldonado was going to tell the story. And as he started to leave, he said, "Well, wait a minute. You didn't promise me the other thing yet." And he said, "Well, what's that?" And he says, "You have to promise me that I don't have to watch while you dig her up." And he said, "You know, okay." So that's how they, and then he, they got him in a car and they drove out. It's a, a, a road, a rural highway in Ventura County and uh, Santa Barbara County and drove him out till he finally, amazingly, was able to find the, the um, place. There was a lot of construction out there because they were building the Casitas Dam at the time. So when they finally found it, they the, the one of the policemen looked at where they were, and there's a mile marker right there, and they were six miles inside Ventura County. So that's how this became this uh, the Ventura trial because she was murdered, and they and they had evidence that she was murdered at the burial site. And the basic story, right, is that they went to her apartment, uh, knocked her over the head, then drove her out to a secluded spot. Well, actually, Louis Moya was a very intelligent guy. He was on parole from Soledad State Prison, but and he got a job working at this uh, restaurant, and he was quickly promoted to night manager within a matter, matter of months. So he, he, was, he was a bright guy. He was articulate. So he came up with a plan, and uh, he said that they would drive there, and he would... Uh, and the, the, they got there just after her nurse friends had left. And he would go up and knock on the door and tell Olga, he said, I have your husband in the car and he's pretty drunk and he's uh, carrying a lot of cash. And I don't think that I should just leave him. So could you come down and help us? And so she went down to help them and they knocked her on the head and pushed her in the car and drove off. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I know I'm, I want to say, I'm telling a lot about, some of the details of the crime. But what I'm telling you about is just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much, so many things that happened in this case that really make it uh, a stranger than fiction, uh, kind of an unbelievable story. And it's, it's very, it's a very fascinating story. And there's a lot more detail in the book. We will return after these brief messages. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real 
stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we're back again. And one of the, the, the more fascinating things to me through, through all of this uh, was Elizabeth Duncan's demeanor. And, and you describe it in words, but also the courtroom pictures, uh, which you have in your book. Yeah. She, she just acted so smug, you know? <laughs> I know. And she was emotionally all over the place. She would yell at the DA during her testimony, get away from me, get away from me, and uh, call him names. And, and then she had outbursts sometimes during the recess. And then she would get on the, um, and the, and this was, all of those recess things were, the jury was out, didn't see her do it. And so that's why the DA, Roy Gustafson, was trying to provoke her during her testimony because he wanted the jury to see how, how she could be and how angry she could be and um, really evil. And because when she testified, when her defense attorney was, asking her the questions, um, boy, butter couldn't melt in her mouth. She was just the nicest, seemed like this very nice matronly woman. And uh, so, yeah, the jury finally saw her true self when Gustafson started doing things to uh, really provoke her, saying, asking her things that would really provoke her. Right. And it was her son, Frank, who defended her, correct? Right. Frank Duncan defended his mother all along. I think after everything I read and everything that happened, I think Frank knew that she committed the crime, that she, she did hire these guys. But I think that he knew what she was like and thought she kind of lived in la-la land and she wouldn't really realize that this was going to happen and because uh, she never thought that far uh, ahead. And also as a criminal defense attorney, he believed at the time in the 1950s that district attorneys and, and police officers weren't always fair to criminals. And sometimes people got railroaded. And so he was there defending his mother, I believe, because he was trying to save her from the gas chamber. He didn't want his mother to be executed. And I think that's what partly motivated. And he was always in a battle with DAs, and he saw it as him against them. Is it true that they walked into a courtroom once uh, holding hands, Frank and his mother? Well, yes, there was a number of uh, witnesses and uh, description of that, that one time uh, when Frank was putting on a uh, uh, was defending a, a client in a trial in Santa Barbara, and his mother was there watching him. It was said that uh, they walked in holding hands. It was a very strange relationship. Whether it was a sexual relationship or not, that's hard to know. I lean towards it is not. It was not. But 
it, it, it was undeniably an extremely close relationship. And, and I do believe that one of the things, uh, Mrs. Duncan thought that her son was absolutely the, I mean, just a prize, that he was just so outstanding. He'd been such a great student and he was such a hard worker. And, and she believed that he was just wonderful and everything he did. And she let him know that. And so I think when a child is brought up and a parent believes that they are this, the most wonderful person in the world, that, that in, in, you know, kind of um, makes that child really love that parent and, and overlook things. And I think Frank Duncan did that. So uh, Moya, Baltanato, and Elizabeth Duncan were all indicted for murder, right? And they all used an insanity defense. Well, um, they all, at first, uh, apparently from everything that I read, a lot of uh, people that were prosecuted for murder pled not guilty and then threw in insanity, you know, just in case. So, so it was, that was part of the plea. It was kind of a, a plan B. And so uh, at first they all did that. But Moya and Baldonado finally were appointed ter- attorneys at their arraignment. And these attorneys were trying to cut some type of a deal. They'd already confessed three or four times on the record at the grand jury and in the police re- uh, police statement they'd signed. And so they didn't feel that they could get them off but they wanted to save them from the gas chamber. And so first they tried to cut a deal that they would testify against Mrs. Duncan if, if Gustafson, and the DA would take uh, the death penalty off the table. And he said, no, he was, Gustafson was a very hard nosed guy. Uh-uh, he's not gonna do it. Uh, he felt he had enough evidence. And then they said, well, uh, Moy's attorney went back and said, would you give my client a separate trial? He didn't, because they were all supposed to be tried together, and he really didn't want his uh, Moya to be tried with her because he felt that they would never have a chance. And so the DA said, okay, if he testifies about what happened, he can have a separate, at this point, he had to plead guilty, and then it was only a penalty trial that they were going to have. So when he agreed to that, he pled guilty, and then Gustafson set his penalty trial for later. And then Moy, or, uh, Baldonado's attorney kind of followed suit and got the same thing for his client. So they agreed to testify, but only in order to get separate uh, penalty trials after pleading guilty. Interesting. Mm-hmm. How quickly did, did everything move as far as the investigation, the arrests, the trial, the whole process? So Olga disappeared on uh, November 17th of 1958. Her body was discovered on December 21st of that year. And Mrs. Duncan's trial began on uh, February 16th or something. Uh, So a couple months later. So there wasn't this long, you know, period of time. And everybody was still in jail. And uh, Baldonado and Moya stayed in jail during Mrs. Duncan's trial. And then their penalty trial uh, was in April, and they both got the death penalty also. It didn't seem to matter that they were these penalty trials were separate. And then they all went off to state prison to await execution through the appeals. So that was in 1959, and the executions were three years later. So it, it's nothing like what happens today. 
you know, three years after arrest in a murder trial, the, the original, the, the, the regular trial might not even have started. Were they all executed at the same time? Yes, they were. Moya and uh, Baldonado were executed. There were two chairs, were just double chairs in the gas chamber in San, San Quentin, and they were executed uh, together. And then Mrs. Duncan uh, was executed uh, a few hours later by herself. Did the police ever take a close look at Frank Duncan? Um, I, you know, what I have is, like I said, the district attorney wrote a memoir more or less a memoir about the case. And it was never published. And I just happened to have a friend that had had it, that had the memoir, and I had access to it. And he said that, you know, they never would have solved the case if Frank Duncan hadn't brought his mother to the police to report this extortion. And the DA really didn't like Frank Duncan, he felt that he wasn't much of a man to leave his pregnant wife on her own to, in her apartment while he went home and lived with his mother. And he, he really didn't like him, but he came to believe that he didn't have anything to do with the murder and didn't know anything about it. And if he was willing to say that, I, I think you know that we can count on that because, like I say, he really despised Frank Duncan. And went after him. He threw out all this innuendos about incest, partly to get at him. When Frank was questioned on the stand by prosecutors, he was asked why he didn't visit Olga after she had reached a certain point in her pregnancy. I mean, the farther along you're into your pregnancy, the more you're going to need help from your husband, right? Right. And he saw her on November 7th, which is 10 days before she was kidnapped. And um, he never saw her or talked to her after that. So when he asked Frank that question, of course, Mrs. Duncan's lead, a lawyer immediately objected and said, you know, Mr. Duncan is not on trial here. And, and the, uh, the judge who didn't sustain a lot of defenses, uh, objections sustained that one. So Frank didn't have to answer. But then the DA threw in, isn't it true that you didn't go see your wife after uh, November 7th because she was too far along in her pregnancy and she wouldn't be able uh, to have marital relationship relations, which Frank immediately started screaming no. But yeah, uh, Gustafson managed to get that in before the jury. Wow. Uh, Gustafson got a lot of stuff in, uh, didn't he? He did. He was a great. He was a great district attorney, and he was. He was a small town. Ventura was a small town uh, at the time, maybe thirty thousand people or something. And of course, he was the DA for the whole county, so it was a, a bigger county. And uh, he served on committees uh, on on uh, criminal laws up at uh, the state capitol, uh, writing new new laws. So he was very involved, and he was serious about trying to run for governor. And in the epilogue, you find out, you know, why that never happened. So as all this is happening, uh, again, as you've said, your dad is, is filling you in, in your family. He has a front row seat. Yeah. And I read all of his articles and, and pestering him. I, at one point, I say, you know, I would get up in the middle of the night when I heard his typewriter keys clicking and ask too many questions. But yeah, I was, I was on it the whole time and read the articles and then ask him more questions. But as I also say, he had no filter. 
So we were hearing it a lot of what was going on in the cart room and the craziness uh, around the dinner table every night, too. So reporters that have newspaper columns often have biases. As your dad is covering this, uh, does he take a side? Is he convinced Elizabeth Duncan is, is guilty? Yes, he was. And, you know, and, and, and Gustafson in his closing argument says, you know, you, you have to decide if there is reasonable doubt. And he said, in this case, there is, there's no reasonable doubt. And in fact, there's no doubt whatsoever. I have never tried a case where, you know, it was, it was so completely proved uh, that she was guilty. And so I think that pretty much everybody in that courtroom, when they listened to this trial testimony, I mean, why would Moya and Baldonado get up there and perjure themselves and tell everybody all the details of how, of how this crime happened? But at home with me in our conversations, yeah, he thought that Elizabeth Duncan is, is guilty. But when I read that, I didn't get the, and now I have read all of the articles that he wrote for the newspaper, and they were certainly very neutral. He never put that bias into his stories. No, he, he had very high standards for reporting, and he would never do that. And he told me once, because our phone was our phone number was listed in the in the phone book, and occasionally he got calls on stories from uh, people maybe that were involved or didn't like it or whatever. And uh, he, I remember one night he said to me there was he had taken two phone calls, and he says, you know, I really know I've done a good job. When one uh, side calls to tell me how much they like it, and the other side tells me how I was so wrong. When, when he knew when there was people thinking he was so right and people think he was so wrong, that he'd done a, a fairly neutral job on it. That's great. Uh, it, it must have been terrifying uh, for Olga, that car ride. I know. My sister lives in the home that we grew up in. And so uh, about... Ten years ago, uh, there was a family that moved in across the street, uh, were renting the place, and Betsy uh, became friendly with the wife. And they would, you know, back and forth and talk. And one day, Betsy was over at the back door talking to the wife about something. And the wife said, well, yeah, my, my husband's great uncle was uh, involved in a very famous murder case here in Ventura. And suddenly it clicked because Betsy knew their last name was Baldonado. And she said, are you talking about the Elizabeth Duncan case? And uh, she said, and, and Betsy says, well, yeah, that was just really terrible. And, and the wife tried to say, well, you know, I, I, we're not so sure about that. And she said, well, she was a pregnant uh, nurse that they admitted that they beat to death. And the husband calls from the living room. Well, they didn't know she was pregnant. And so that managed to go through all of these generations because one of the things that they insisted on the stand is we didn't know she was pregnant. Well, she was seven months pregnant. And I can't believe, as I'm someone who's carried two children, that she wasn't doing everything she could to cover up her stomach, to try to protect that baby, and also crying out, please don't hurt my baby. So I, yeah. I don't believe that they didn't know that she was pregnant. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Because I know, as a young woman, you know, carrying a child, that would have been foremost on my mind, and I would have been pleading with them not to hurt my baby. And, yeah. uh, they, but they still maintained and it managed to get a couple of generations forward. Oh, we didn't know she was pregnant. Like, it, you know, it wouldn't have been so bad 
if it, it wasn't that bad because they didn't know she was pregnant. Did did your father attend the executions? Yes, he did. He was a witness in all three of those executions, and it really had an impact on him, and it changed his view of the death penalty. But yeah, it did. Did he share those details with you at at, at that age? Well, I actually, I read, by that time, I was in junior high school in 1962, and I read the articles myself in the paper. And he wrote a very detailed and, and really an excellent kind of emotional account of those executions. And so eventually I brought it up and I said, I, I read about Mrs. Duncan uh, getting executed in that story you wrote. And he said, you know, something like it was a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing to witness. And I talk about this at the end of the book. And I said, well, it was a terrible thing to kill Olga. And uh, but uh, so, yeah, we had a discussion about the executions. Your dad sounds like he was quite an interesting guy. He was. He was a very interesting guy. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of the, it was a big, he, he died very suddenly in 1987. And he had his huge funeral where uh, all kinds of people came, judges and state legislature, congressmen, and then lots of people who just read his column. And uh, so one of the, you know, testimonials are the, oh, that people speak at a, at a funeral. One of his colleagues said, you know, he was the most unphony man I ever met. And I think that that would, was a very true statement about my dad. He was just, you know, he said what he thought and he was, he had a lot of integrity. But I, you know, something that I did, I was going to put in the book and I didn't. So I'll tell you this real quick. After the thing, everything was over, uh, Mrs. Duncan had been found guilty and sentenced to death. Her defense attorney, Ward Sullivan, who was this real hotshot defense attorney from LA that Frank had hired, had a party at his house. I believe it was in the Hollywood Hills when I think about the location that I, we went to. And he invited the press and he invited, I don't know, various people. A lot of it was press. And uh, I don't know if Roy Gustafson was invited, but he didn't show up. He wasn't there and I wouldn't imagine he would. So I begged my parents to take me to this party. And it was very inappropriate for them to do it, but they were just kind of out there people. So they took me <laughs> to the party and Frank was there with his new wife and the defense attorney and all these people talking around, you know, drinking and kind of having a good time. And I was just really taken aback by it all that they were, you know, kind of, you know, re reliving the trial and talking about things. And Frank was there with his, I don't know if he was, I think it was his, I think it was his fiance, his new fiance who became his new wife. And I remember thinking, uh, about her, you know, watching her and, and thinking, gosh, you know, is she sure she really wants to marry Frank Duncan? And one of the uh, lawyers, one of the DAs who met with Frank and the, another attorney on, during the appeals, they were waiting for somebody to get there. And uh, Frank was just, the, this guy said, just happily chatting about, you know, one of his current cases. And, you know, he, 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 he was a different guy. And, and in the end, he testifies during the penalty trial, uh, something about himself, about that he doesn't really like to think about things like that. And he just moves on. 
but you know, I still, that, that party stuck with me. I still remember that. And I remember on the way home thinking, well, my parents shouldn't take, taken me. I of course was the only child there, but they did. Yeah. What an experience it must've been, you know, following this this case for so long. And then, and, and then you see them all in person. I'm still upset about Olga and they're all having drinks and, you know, talking about who knows what. Yeah. And Frank's there with the new wife. I mean, he seems to have forgotten Olga or or fiance at least. Yeah. And I really wanted to put that in the book, but you know, I just never found the right spot. And so I already had a pretty big book anyway, so I I didn't put it in there. Yeah. Well, Well, this has been so great and I'll time this. So I released the episode on the day your book comes out which is October 4th. Yes, uh-huh. And you have a website, deborahholtlarkin.com. Exactly, deborahholtlarkin.com. And so it will just be, it will be up on your most notorious website if people want to watch the, uh, or listen to the podcast. And, and I'll put those links to your website in the show notes. Okay, thank you. And you, you have the first two chapters of your book on, on your website as well. I do, I do. Hmm. Yes, well, thank you, Eric, for having me. I really enjoyed uh, the discussion. Well, well, thank you for coming on. Again, it's been so interesting. Once more, I have been speaking to Deborah Holt Larkin. Her book is called A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan, and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.